You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from John chapter 5, verses 15 through 29. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, we do pray now that you would lift our eyes to Jesus, that we might see him in your word. Uh, With even a difficult text like this, we pray that we might see you clearly, might see him clearly, that we might love you and love others with more passion and compassion, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. And be seated. I think you can see a little better this week. We're trying out an experiment. We were like kind of 50-50 like thinking about that over there. So, you know, whatever. that'd be cool, right? Right? No? All right. Forget it. We'll just stay right here for the time being. Uh, well, have you ever thought that you knew a person and then they say or do something that makes you think, wait, I, I didn't know you at all, right? Maybe like in a, in a bad way. You've, we've all had examples of friends or family people that we knew, that we thought that we knew them, right? But then their, their like, character discredited them in some major way. Or uh, they betrayed you when you assumed that you had their loyalty in your relationship. But also maybe in a, like, a good or surprising way. Uh, six years ago, I went to my first Simeon uh, Trust preaching conference. It's a preaching conference that's held here in Albuquerque, but they're all over the world. And the first morning of this first conference, 
the morning they got started, we were all milling around, uh, just small talking, getting to know some folks before the conference started. And I met this guy named Dave, who was a pastor in a church in Chicago. And we just were getting to know each other. And he was like really uh, genuinely interested in getting to know me. He was asking how like youth ministry was going and, and how I liked Albuquerque and all these things. He, he genuinely cared. Uh, I asked him why he came all the way to Albuquerque for this preaching conference. And he said, you know, I, I just love these conferences. They, they just are really beneficial to me and they just really serve, uh, serve me well to be at these things. So a couple minutes later, we get started, and the, the pastor of the host church gets up, and he is introducing this conference, and he said, I'd like to welcome a guy up uh, to, to lead us now. He's the, over 20 years ago, he started these conferences uh, just in, a, in his small church in Chicago, and now they're all over the world. Uh, so I'd like to welcome up Dave Helm. And I was like, I was just talking to the guy. I didn't even realize it, right? And here's the guy. This is Dave Helm. Like, he wrote the big picture story Bible that I read to my kids every night for the last couple of years. He's on the, like, the Council of the Gospel Coalition. In our circles of evangelicalism, he's a big deal. And I had no idea until he, like, took his mask off, right? Well, Jesus is about to take his mask off. Everything that Jesus has done up until this point should have shown folks who he was. He really wasn't wearing that much of a mask before, but here tonight, he's not going to let people guess anymore. Now, before we get going into our text in John 5, uh, the next five chapters through chapter 10 are about to get very Jewish. There's a whole lot of Old Testament stuff to explore, and John is going to arrange his structure according to many Jewish festivals. Uh, beginning last week and tonight with the Sabbath festival in chapter 5, and then the Passover festival in chapter 6. The Tabernacles Festival in chapters 7 and 8, and then the Hanukkah Festival, or the Feast of Dedication in chapter 10. And then, just like we've seen John arrange his entire gospel uh, as moving deeper into the temple symbolically, Jesus is, uh, he's been dealing a lot with water in the past few chapters, water into wine, the living water at the Samaritan well, uh, water at the pool by the Sheep Gate last week and here tonight. He is symbolically still at the laver, the, the wash basin, the outer courts of the temple. And then John is going to have Jesus symbolically move deeper and deeper and deeper into the temple, ultimately showing Jesus to be the fulfillment of the entirety of the temple itself. Well, he's also going to subtly show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Jewish feasts and festivals as well, beginning tonight with the Sabbath. So after healing the lame man by the pool, like we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 5, if there was any mistaking who he was, all that's over by the middle of this chapter. Jesus is going to explain in really two halves of who he is, and we'll also look through these two halves. In first, the divinity of Jesus, and then the authority of Jesus. So let's first read again verses 15 through 18 in John chapter 5. The man went away. He told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, until I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he's, he was even calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so like we got into last week, uh, the Jewish leadership is upset at the work that the healed man is doing and carrying his bed mat. Instead of looking for the kingdom of the Messiah, right, they see this former paralyzed man now walking around. They should be thinking, the Messiah is here. His kingdom has arrived. Like, the lame are walking. Instead, they're upset because their rules are getting broken. 
And just as a reminder, like we talked about last week, the Sabbath is a good gift from God. It's a gift to his people to weekly remind them that he is God and they are not. He'll provide everything that they need because he's good, before, because he, he cares for the people. They don't have to work themselves to death, right, to, to get what they need and to live and certainly to live in his rest. God will provide life through rest. But the leadership at this time had made all sorts of additional buffer rules around the law that God had first given to his people. So it's as if the law to obey the Sabbath was like just a, a command, like we might say like, all right, if the law to obey the Sabbath is to don't drink milk, but then because I'm afraid that you might be tempted to drink milk, then I say, all right, it's not just good enough to don't drink milk, but avoid the dairy aisle altogether, right? In fact, just to be safe, don't drink any dairy products or eat them as well. And since you guys still might be tempted towards dairy, I know your sinful hearts, right? Uh, you're not even allowed to walk through the dairy aisle at Smith's. In fact, don't go to grocery stores at all. Just avoid them altogether. The temptation might be too great. So the initial good law, a gift from God, had become like a restrictive and burdensome law in a way to earn God's favor, in a way to appear righteous before other people. You want to know how holy I really am? It's not that I just never go to Smith's, right? Like everything that I eat, everything that my family eats, I grow and raise myself. I, I eat everything that I've made. I don't what? The, the first law was just don't drink milk, right? Now we've gone way over here. So Jesus shows up and says, oh, that's nonsense. Let's not only go to Smith's, but let's just go straight through the dairy aisle and get some delicious meats at the deli. Maybe Charles Salazar will hook us up, right? But they ask him, how in the world do you have the right to do this? How can you decide what's right and wrong? And even in our estimation, break the Sabbath, to which Jesus says, my father's working until now and I am working. Which is kind of cryptic, right? We don't quite understand what he's saying. That's a weird thing to say. But here's what it means and what the, Jew, the Jews immediately understood. They had no question of what he meant. Jesus is saying that on the, the seventh day of creation, the first Sabbath of the first work week, God rested from his work, right? But did God rest from all work? Like, did he go to sleep? No, like if he went to sleep, the universe would have imploded. His providence and sovereignty removed, uh, there would be nothing left. He didn't cease from working. He's upholding the universe. History keeps moving. Atoms and gravity keep functioning, right? God is still working on the Sabbath. And if God didn't cease from working on that first Sabbath, then he doesn't continue to take a once-a-week Sabbath, a rest from his work, on and into history, right? He merely rested that first Saturday from his creative work, a model for humans to join in on him with in this work-rest pattern. And all of this is taught by and agreed upon by Jewish rabbis of the day. We, we, we have extra biblical evidence and teachings of Jewish rabbis who are thinking and writing about these kinds of things, of God's initial rest from work, but then his continued work through the Sabbath and on into each Sabbath. So now Jesus shows up and says, hey, you know how God rested, but he keeps working on the Sabbath? Well, I'm doing that too. And then they're like, what, 
wait, what? What did he just say? I, did he just say what we think he said? Yeah. He said that he can not only heal, he can not only carry things if he wants to and command others to carry things if he wants to. He can work on the Sabbath because I work on the Sabbath like my father. And this infuriates the Jews. He is, in their estimation, breaking the Sabbath. He is saying that he's equal with God. He, and on top of that, he's calling God his father, which you can't do. Something totally uncool, right? God is all-powerful. He's inapproachable in light and in glory and in holiness. He's totally unlike us. To imply a kind of intimate relationship with God as father is just ridiculous. We got to kill him. We got to kill him. He's undoing our understanding of the law. He's making blasphemous claims. In fact, who is this guy anyway? We know who he is. He's just a carpenter from Nazareth. And can anything good come from Nazareth? No way. Who's this guy think he is? But if there were any doubt who he thinks he is, Jesus is going to just keep going in for another crank on the vice, another tightening of the screws just to make it clear. In verse 19, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives, gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now while the, the theology of the Trinity is all over the pages of the, of the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of John helps us clarify and crystallize some categories, some definitions of the Trinity, uh, maybe better than any other book in the Bible. So like I mentioned from the first couple of sentences from the gospel, right? remember what we read in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. I'm hopeful that our time through this gospel will help us understand the nature of the triune God more clearly. Not only just understand, but to worship and delight in the triune God more clearly. So first of all, it's important that we wade into Trinitarian theology with care, carefulness, and precision. Uh, when we just start throwing around words or ideas or what we think the Trinity might be like, this is when we actually just jump off the cliff and into heresy. Uh, so we won't say things like, I think the Trinity is like a clover or an egg or maybe like the three forms of H2O, water, ice, and vapor, right? The, uh, hopefully we'll continue to go through as we march through John's gospel, we'll see why these are deficient uh, analogies for understanding the Trinity, but until then, and in the meantime, if you just like to YouTube St. Patrick's Bad Analogies, uh, this will entertain you and inform and educate you. Uh, you can do that this evening. Oh, Patrick. Um, but here's the deal. We worship one God in three persons. Distinct persons, not blending their persons, but at the same time, not dividing their essence. This is crazy and deep and just mind-blowing theology that we're sticking our toe into this evening. Meaning we don't worship three gods. You guys know this, right? We are not tritheists. We don't uh, obey, we don't worship this like pantheon of three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is one God. We are monotheists. So while it's true that part of the nature of the second person of the Trinity is to be the Son, there's some sense in which the sun is, has always been and is always sunning. It's part of his essence to be the sun. 
While Jesus is just as much eternal as the Father, the Father did not create the Son, we can say that the Father is the source of the Son. The Son, sharing in glory and divinity, co-equal in majesty, emanates from the Father. The theological category for this is, is called eternal generation. That the Son has always been, and He has always been emanating from the Father. The source. And I hope that this isn't just mundane words of meaningless theology for all of us. If we have a surface level or shallow understanding of the triune God, we will have a surface level and shallow delight in the triune God. And if all this is about to make your head explode, well, good news, me too, right? This is hard stuff to think through how the Son has always been eternal, but always been emanating from the Father, how they are co-equal, but the Father being the source of the Son, and the Spirit proceeding then from the Son. That, like, blow your mind, right? Calvin encourages us, whenever we come to a difficult theology, to just exhaust the Scriptures on everything they have to say about that theology. Study, meditate, ask others, read books, do all that you can, and then when you still don't understand, just drop to your knees and worship an amazing God that we can't understand, which is actually good, right? We actually should hope that our finite and uh, mortal minds couldn't understand the depths of a triune God. And the good news is we have eternity to plumb the depths of the mystery of the triune God and the triune act of our redemption. So this is what Jesus is explaining about himself in verse 19, that whatever the Father does, Jesus does. It's not that Jesus doesn't know what is good. He has to find out from God the Father what is good or what to do. He is eternal. He is the eternal and wise, good God of the universe. Jesus, the second person. But that his knowledge, his wisdom, and his righteousness emanates from the Father as the source. That the Father and Son are co-equal but not reciprocal, if this begins to make sense. Like it would never do for John to say that the Father observes the Son and learns from the Son. That just doesn't, that, that can't work in this category of a triune God. But Jesus, the Son, uh, observes and learns from the Father as the source of righteousness and knowledge and wisdom. Whatever the Father sees, we, or whatever Jesus sees the Father doing, he does. Nevertheless, Jesus here is claiming to be God. The Father shows the Son what he's doing. And by the way, the only reason Jesus needs to see and, and learn from the Father here is because he has taken on a, uh, a human nature for 33 years. That's the only reason he's chosen to limit his knowledge for just these 33 years because he's taken on a human nature. But that's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time that we don't have time to blow our minds with this evening. But Jesus will do the works of God so that the people will marvel. He's going to do all these things that he sees and observes the Father doing so that the people will see that God is at work here in Christ. But maybe you aren't buying it yet, though. Maybe you, maybe you and perhaps the Jews here are thinking that Jesus is just an agent of God. He's here to do what God has asked him to do. Like, you know, we've seen throughout uh, God's people's history, there are prophets who are trying to imitate God. They're trying to be godly, and then they do the acts of God, even in miraculous ways. Maybe Jesus is just a prophet uh, in the likes of like Elijah or Elisha. Well, in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. 
Jesus isn't just God's instrument on earth. He's not a walking, talking magic wand that God the Father is using to heal and to do whatever he wants to do. No, Jesus' choices and his divine will are identical to that of the Father because they are the same will. One of Christian history's clearest and most helpful Trinitarian theologians is a guy named John Owen from the 1600s. And he says, not specifically about this verse, but helpfully here, if it were possible for three men, or if it were possible that three men might see by the same eye, the act of seeing would be but one, and it would be exactly the act of all three. You see what he's saying? It's like uh, Clint and Skylar and I, for some weird reason, all shared one eye. All three of us are distinct, but we're looking through the same eye. That act of vision is a singular act. And this is what Jesus is getting after here. He's saying he shares an eye. Therefore, the vision of God the Father. He has the power of life that only God the Father has. Which is mixed in right in here with the healing of this guy by the pool. And it also gets us ready for Jesus' command to the dead of Lazarus, the dead man, back to life. And it also perhaps even looks back to John 3 and Jesus' teaching on the second birth, that when someone is spiritually reborn, it is the act of the triune God to bring that dead man to life. Jesus is saying, I am God. The will of the Father and mine are the same because I am God. All right, so who in the world cares? Right, how, like, This is great theology, right? Perhaps I learned a word in a category that's interesting for some theological exam down the road, but how does this help me tomorrow morning on Monday? Well, our first header is the divinity of Jesus. What Jesus is teaching here should just explode through the brick wall of the modern understanding of most of the world of Jesus, that he's just some groovy teacher or an interesting prophet. Many of you are well aware of C.S. Lewis's three options for Jesus— Either Jesus was a lunatic, right? How, he's, a, he's a crazy person who is entirely delusional. I was just listening to a uh, 21st century psychiatrist explain her understanding of Jesus, and she diagnosed him as schizophrenic, right? He does different things in different areas of his life. He likes to get alone and be by himself. He talks to himself. If that's the case, just go ahead and ignore everything that he has to say, right? Everything that he's teaching here and everything that he understands about reality is because of some past trauma in his life or some chemical imbalance. Not trustworthy. Ignore him. Or Jesus is a willful, willful liar. He has no uh, imbalances or personality, dis- personality disorders, but he is a malicious liar trying to dupe gullible uh, just chumps like you and me and his people, right, into believing that he is God. That's terrible. Don't, definitely don't believe him if he's that, right? Or Lewis gives us a third option. If he's not a lunatic, if he's not a liar, then he must be the Lord. And that everything that he is saying about himself must be true. And you have to take him at his word. And not just pick and choose the parts of his teaching that you like. This obviously has implications for those of you who are with us tonight. who who may not be a Christian. You might be exploring Jesus, but not quite willing to submit uh, your life to him. You like some parts of his teaching, but not others. But you can't just have him as a groovy teacher. You can't just have him as an interesting philosopher. He has made claims about himself, and he has made claims over you. Or maybe you're a doubting Christian. 
You're, you're wrestling through genuine, difficult questions. Questions about the problem of evil, about suffering in the world. You're uncomfortable with what the Bible may be teaching about things in, the, in our modern understanding, about like marriage or sexuality. The notion of hell or, or judgment just don't seem to jive with your understanding of a God of love. Well, first, by no means, don't just go stick your head into the stand. We want to think through these questions together with you as a church. We don't want to pretend like those questions don't exist. But here's the deal. 2,000 years ago, this carpenter from Nazareth claimed that he was the pre-existent second person of the Trinity. That by the word of his power, all things, every atom in the universe was created through and by him. That's what you got to do business with first. Who is this guy? Is he God or is he not? Yes or no? Yes or no? And if no, then just forget about it. Just don't, don't worry about all of these other questions. But if yes, then we can't pick and choose what we like and don't like. And if yes, then and only then can we get to those second issue, those third issue questions of philosophy or theology or history or science, those other things. Don't worry about those things yet, though. Do business with this man first. Now, of course, we, many have added a fourth option to the Lord, liar, lunatic framework, and that's of legend. Sure, those are the only three options if the gospel accounts are trustworthy, but what if these gospel accounts aren't trustworthy eyewitness accounts? What if they're just later legends and we can't trust what John and the other gospel writers have written? Well, we talked a little bit about that in the intro to this book, about the likely author and dating of this book, but we'll keep talking through that issue as we go as well. But Christian, don't ignore the God-man's teaching for your life. All of it. He has brought you to life by his word, so keep seeking him. Let's keep uh, beholding him together in our individual lives as we read about him through his word. Let's seek him corporately together on Sundays and throughout the week. He is the gravitational center of the universe. We need to keep reminding of ourselves that that's true. He is God, and that means that he has authority over the universe and over you. All of it. He's claimed you as his own. He is the king. So now that gets us right into our second section. Let's move into the second section and think through the authority of Jesus. In verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Who does not honor, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into, the, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here Jesus is further saying what he's already said, but he's adding some nuance and adding some even further depth the functional job of judgment does not belong to the Father, but belongs to the Son. More on that in a minute. And that to truly honor and love God means that you have to honor and love Jesus. And you can see why those hearing Jesus, uh, their, their blood pressure is starting to really boil. It's raising and raising. Their, the sweat is beginning to bead on their foreheads as they hear him saying these things. Every day of their lives for the past millennium and a half, these folks have begun and ended their day with this 
prayer and reminder to themselves. They say, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus certainly isn't contradicting this. He's just fully revealing and explaining what the Shema has always meant. Unity and Trinity and Trinity and unity. He's revealed something new about the God that they have been worshiping for millennia. But his hearers are only hearing contradiction. They're only hearing blasphemy. Jesus is confronting them and us that it's more than possible to have sincere uh, and just really convicted belief, even religious belief, and still be wrong. You hear that? Because that's the reality for most humans that have lived in human history and most humans that are alive today. That most people have very sincere convictions, very sincere beliefs about God, about the world, and that they can still be wrong. God has revealed himself. God has revealed the way to himself. He has revealed that way to be through Christ. And all other ways are misguided All other ways are misinformed or even ill-informed. Like we touched on several weeks ago, this sounds horribly arrogant. It sounds horribly exclusive to our modern ears. But rather than getting upset that God has only provided one way, the, the posture of the Bible is, holy cow, can you believe that God has provided a way? This is unbelievable. And yet we get upset at He hasn't provided more. If you're still wrestling with this question, though, hang in there. We'll take a deeper dive into this question about other world religions and the so-called exclusivity of Christ in chapters 10 and 14. So just hang in there with us. But Jesus again says in verse 24 that his word is life-giving. His word is the authoritative power of life and death. And then he just goes for it in verses 25 through 29. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. And is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." Okay, so if their blood pressure is rising, now it's exploded. Jesus has been calling himself the son of God, but now he has finally called himself the son of man, which is a character that appears in Daniel 7 in a vision that the Jewish leaders would have known really, really well. Daniel wrote this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and all languages should serve him, the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Yup. All of that dominion, all of that authority belongs to the Son of Man whom Jesus just called himself. All peoples, all nations, all languages will serve me. Not me. That was speaking as Jesus, right? Jesus pretty explicitly just implied to his hearers. 
the, the scope of human history has been to worship me, <laughs> right? Like blood pressure through the roof. They're, they're grabbing their stones here, right? And then Jesus has got some end times explaining to do about what that means. Let me ask you this. Did you know that it's not the teaching of the Bible that when you die, your disembodied spirit will travel away to heaven uh, where then you'll float away and live for eternity? The movie version of heaven that we think we're looking forward to is actually, and here's another good theological category for us, uh, the intermediate state, meaning the time between the times. So when we die, on this side of Christ's return, when we die, those who are in Christ, our spirits will uh, go to him to be with him in heaven. But for a time, for a time, the intermediate time, the time between the times. And that time The time of heaven is actually not our eternal hope. Our eternal hope is the time of Christ's return. When he comes to make all things new, fully and finally righting every wrong and uh, wiping away every tear and doing away with sin forever. All people at that time when he returns, all people who have ever lived, their bodies are going to come back to life. Spooky, right? Uh, Then our souls especially those who are, have lived and died and their spirits are residing now in heaven, our spirits and our souls will be reunited for eternity to live now in a restored new earth under King Jesus forever. That day is what Morgan Freeman's character in the great movie, movie Glory calls the great getting up day. And I'm not sure if on that day, on his return, when, uh, if, if like all of our bodies will... Our hands will like shoot through the dirt or if we like have to dig through six feet of dirt. I'm not sure. I'm not sure of those people who have had their bodies destroyed, right? Like probably millions of them in, in human history, right? I'm not sure what God will do to recreate and reanimate their bodies, but this is the anthropology of the end times of the Bible. And it's pretty wild. But here's the deal. This is not just a future reality for those who are Christians. All people will have a great getting up day. Every human that has ever lived, their bodies, when Jesus says the word, will come back to life, to a resurrection. It's just, is that day of resurrection a day of hope and of life? Or is that day and that resurrection a resurrection of dread and of judgment? The the resurrection is a certain outcome for every human who has ever lived. Let's be real clear here. Jesus says that everyone will be brought back to life, a resurrection of life or a resurrection of judgment. Uh, And and then he goes after it there where he's saying those who have done good and done evil, Jesus is not teaching here a salvation of works. Perhaps you heard that, you're a Born and bred Protestant, right? We all celebrated this thing uh, last October about salvation by grace through faith alone, right? Jesus is not uh, contradicting that or undermining that. It's not that if you've simply lived a good life and you've done more good things than bad, you go to the good place. But then if the scales tip the other way and you've done more bad than good, then you go to the bad place. We know that John doesn't believe this. 
Maybe the most famous verse in all of John, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Believe. Belief and faith are the things that are saving in the gospel of John. So rather, done good or done evil that Jesus is teaching here, we need to read this in light of the rest of the gospel of John. And it can be explained by later in chapter 3, in verses 20 through 21, where Jesus taught this. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So here's a question for us. Does Jesus' coming, does his claims about himself, do his claims over you, do, does his spotlight, the light of God that he shines on our lives, does that spotlight make you want more of it? Does it make you want to come to him? Even as painful as that may be, that coming to the light means the death of yourself, dying to your former self, dying to uh, your former habits, dying to living only for yourself and now living for him. But yet, we still want more. Do you want that? Or does the light of Christ, shining and exposing your life, make you want to run? Perhaps stay there for a minute, explore him a little bit, see what this church thing is about, maybe accept parts of Jesus' teaching, but ultimately when he makes a claim over your life, you're out, skittering away. Well, those who have hope for the future resurrection have already experienced spiritual resurrection. The same Jesus who has the authority to speak a word and billions of dead people will then come to life also has the authority to first cause people to be spiritually born again. So in that sense, for those of us who are Christians, eternal life isn't just some future reality to look forward to. Jesus himself said, there's an hour coming and is even, even now, happening even now. There's a sense in which we Christians, we have a future bodily resurrection to look forward to because we have first experienced a spiritual resurrection The kingdom of heaven has just invaded this kingdom. It's overlapped in the timeline of your life. And then there's a sense in which we just will continue on in the trajectory of eternal life that we've begun experiencing now, today. Eternal life is now. One wrongful tendency is to think about this life as this like isolated earthly realm over here, right? And at some point, perhaps, hopefully, you get to what one Bible teacher calls a password moment. You live in this earthly realm, and at some point you say the password, a prayer to Jesus. Jesus, save me. And then as long as you say the password, then when you die, you get to go over to this other realm of heaven for eternity. And there's some truth to that, right? There's a moment where we come to believe in Christ. But rather, if John 5 is more of our framework of understanding, then we can think of our earthly life as a timeline. And we're, we're like, over here, we're, all humans have hated God. We are proudly and defiantly marching away from him toward judgment, towards hell. This is what we want for ourselves. But when Christ comes and he invades our life, invades this timeline and pushes his way in, then he turns the trajectory of our life. Now we're marching for eternity towards him. 
He turns us around. So in that sense, the resurrection to life or death is just a necessary culmination of the direction that we've been walking our entire life. A necessary culmination of what we most want. And this framework can help us make sense of verses like what Clint read as our assurance of pardon from 2 Corinthians. Like, you guys know this verse? You've been made a new creation, right? And sometimes I don't think that verse offers much assurance because we don't really understand it. It causes us to doubt ourselves. Wait, I thought I was a new creation. Why am I still sinning in this way? I'm still dealing with the same old things that I've been dealing with for decades. I don't feel like a new creation. Well, if this is our framework of, of marching this way, but then God brings new resurrection life and forces us this way, causing us, calling us to life in him, now we see. Of course, I, I'm not free from sin eternally. He hasn't come once and for all to bring a resurrection for all of our bodies, but he has certainly made a new creation, and he has uh, made me alive in him. He hasn't done away with my sin entirely, but he has brought me life. And I am walking this way. Not perfectly, but I'm walking towards him. And that's why John has all of this under the shadow of the Sabbath. We Christians, we're not Sabbatarians. I think the, Sabbath, the Seventh-day Adventists have got it all wrong. The Sabbath was all along preparing us, not just for a physical once-a-week rest, but spiritual rest for eternity. When Jesus lives and dies for our sins, God gives a great Sabbath gift. He gives life. We don't have to work our lives to death because Jesus has worked his life to death. And now God will provide us life through resting in Christ's work alone. We're all on equal ground because it's not our works that save us. It's not our ability to observe certain laws that saves us. I can't look at you and just get discouraged because you're so much holier than I am. And why can't I just live more like him or her, right? Because it's not your holiness that saves you or makes you right before God. And I can't, like the Pharisees or these Jews here, look at myself and think that I have kept the law better than all of you and look down my nose at you in judgment. Because it's not my ability to keep laws that makes me right before God. My rest is not in my ability to keep the law, but my rest is in Christ alone. So now we remember our resurrection life through the Resurrection Sunday that we celebrate every day. You guys realize that, right? Easter Sunday is not the only Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We don't observe the Sabbath forcing ourselves out of work and into rest. We celebrate the resurrection. We don't observe this, we celebrate. This is what we're doing here this evening, on this Sunday evening, is celebrating, swimming in, basking in our rest before God that Christ has given us. So now, if all of this is true, that we are experiencing eternal life even now, today, this is the trajectory on which we are walking towards Christ forever. And we have confidence because of what Christ has done for us in his life and death in giving us his Sabbath rest. Now I just can't wait for, to join you all at this table. If as formal, former dead people now alive, we're looking forward to our final and full second resurrection and our far greater and more satisfying a wedding feast of the Lamb on that day, then I can't wait to look forward to it and remember this rest that we have today. Not like 
walking up like you're like walking the wrong way in the lazy river or something. You ever been to a water park, right? You know that feeling like, I think sometimes we are fighting when we're walking forward, remembering what Jesus has done for us, but saying, I wasn't good enough this week. I haven't tried hard enough. I haven't done well enough. But this is fighting. And instead, just getting in the inner tube with like a strawberry daiquiri or something and just like floating up here, like receiving God's rest that he has given to us. This is amazing. Just jump into the lazy river of God's grace and what Jesus has already given us. The battle is won. Your rest is to be experienced now, today, and for eternity. Let's thank the Lord for that together. Our Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself as a triune God, that you are a triune God, that you have created, that you have become a man for us, that you can represent us, but that you can also pull us in to your presence by your grace, Lord Jesus, by your perfect obedience by your perfect law-keeping, where we were not able to, where we did not want to. So now, Father, we pray that you would give us rest. We pray now that we would understand uh, the trajectory of our life, all of us here. For those of us who are, uh, that you have saved, who our, our hope is fixed on you, that we, however painful it might be at some, at some times of our life, we, are, we, we love the light, we're, we're walking towards you, moving towards you from now into eternity. But also, perhaps, Father, tonight, those who are continuing on in their headlong march away from you, Father, might you reveal yourself. Lord Jesus, might you force your way in. We don't think it's an accident that our friends are here this evening, that you are wooing them to yourself. But we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself as the Lord of their life, as the king over their life, that they are no longer able to pick and choose the parts of your teaching that they like. But out of joy, might for the first time, perhaps even tonight, that you might turn them, that they might come to the light as you are in the light, and that this might be a great place of rest, of peace, and of joy. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.